2 Thessalonians chapter 2. Now, the, now concerning the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ and our being gathered together to him, we ask you, brothers, not to be quickly shaken in mind or alarmed, either by a spirit or a spoken word or a letter seeming to be from us, to the effect that the day of the Lord has come. Let no one deceive you in any way, for that day will not come unless the rebellion comes first and the man of lawlessness is revealed, the son of destruction, who opposes and exalts himself against every so-called God or object of worship, so that he takes his seat in the temple of God, proclaiming himself to be God. Do you not remember that when I was still with you, I told you these things? And you know what is restraining him now, that he may be revealed in his time. For the mystery of the lawlessness is already at work. Only he who now restrains him, it will do, only he who, who now restrains it will do so until he is out of the way. And then the lawless one will be revealed, whom the Lord Jesus will kill with the breath of his mouth and bring to nothing by the appearance of his coming. The coming of the lawless one is by the activity of Satan with all power and false signs and wonders and with all wicked deception for those who are perishing because they refuse to love the truth and so be saved. Therefore, God will send them a strong delusion so that they may believe what is false, in order that all may be condemned who did not believe the truth, but had pleasure in unrighteousness. This is the reading of God's word. Let's pray, church. Lord God, thank you for your word. Help us not to be deceived by the words of man, yet let us be strong and cling to your holy gospel. Help us to be persistent in seeking your will and keep our eyes open to your marvelous grace. Lord, let us find peace in knowing you are in charge, and we have nothing to fear as long as we are with you. Thank you, Jesus, our one true salvation. Let our hope grow in anticipation of your coming, knowing that all will be made righteous by you. Please, Holy Spirit, open our hearts and minds to receive your word. Bless Pastor Mark as he moves through your scripture. In Jesus' name, amen. Good morning, fam. How we doing? We're good? Man, you have come on a great morning. If you're a guest, especially if this is one of your first times here at Living Stones, you're just this is a great morning. We're gonna we're gonna kind of uh, encapsulate this gathering at the end by baptizing, which is this sign of God changing people and God's active role in our lives, in our soul, in our world. So what a great morning we have and. And, uh, and so, man, I, I got to get in this text. I got to get out of this text. We got to dunk some people. We got some things going on. Uh, but one of the things I'm most excited about Sunday, and, and many of you know, and I cannot tell you uh, how thankful I am that uh, we have been loved so well by you and cared for so much. And, and if you have not heard, I know you've been traveling with us in this, like, what's God doing through Christy and this mass that we found and all that we've gone through, and Tuesday night, it's benign, it's, yeah, yeah, right on, it's, it's, the, it's my word of the year, it's my word of the year, I don't even know how to spell it, I know there's a G in there, benign goodman, but I, but it's my favorite word, and, uh, and I'm telling you, I, this, this is what I, this is what I think, and I just, I think this way because it just gives more glory to God, is she had, she had a tumor that's, 0.02% of all tumors ever in the world. It's that rare. And it presents itself as cancer. It's very, very difficult. And our surgeon had enough wherewithal to send it to Stanford to have it uh, specifically diagnosed, which doesn't always happen. And a lot of people that have these end up getting chemo and radiation, and they don't really need it, but it, it appears as if they do. All God's grace. And we've been praying. You've been praying. Uh, people all over the world have been praying. And I'm telling you, it's just a couple molecules difference from cancer and benign. And I'm like, I, I just wonder if the Lord, if the Lord miraculously took it from cancer to not. And yeah, you know you did. That's right. That's right. Man, and I just like, God is so good. So good. And, and here's the thing. Some people don't, don't get healed. God is good. That the goodness and the grace of God is how he walked through us in it, not the results only. 
and uh, and so we're we're all in it together. I'm just thankful, and 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 so and she's going to be here in second service, and uh, it's it just God is at work, and we're excited to kind of get this in the rearview mirror, so we can keep pushing forward uh, and hanging with you, chopping it up, being on mission together, being available, free, having you over, all of that. Uh, and so we're excited. And when I posted this on Tuesday, it became the, the, the biggest, most reacted to post of my Facebook career. Uh, and, uh, and so, and it, it's like, it went viral, you know? And even, even Christy's tumor went viral because a medical conference used her case because most doctors never see this tumor in their career. And so 100-plus doctors in Stanford, and there's Christie's case was at the center of it. It's gone viral, you know? And that's the thing is, the reason it is the most incredible post is because of how good the news is, right? And people are like, I'm going to share that. I want to get in on that. And that, in essence, is the work of the gospel that if you, if you really heard it, it, it would just explode out of you. And you would begin to repost it with your life. Are you with me? You hear that? You'd begin to repost it. You wouldn't just thumbs it up on Sunday. You would begin to live that out. And this series is called Viral Hope because it's hope, it's really good news. And if we were to really understand it, it begins to get lived out into the city by the church. And that's where we're at. And, and we're in the second book of Thessalonians to so this letter to this church in this really affluent, um, really highly sought-after city in, in this Greco-Roman world. And, um, and, and they had some questions about what does it look like to follow Jesus, and Paul is answering these questions. And there was a set of questions that gave us the first book of Thessalonians, and then they were like, okay, that's cool. I got some more questions. So then Paul's like, all right, here we go, Second Thessalonians. And that, that's where we're at. That's what's happening here in chapter 2. So we're going we're gonna to get into this. What is this hope? But like our situation, there was a lot of like urgent wait, right? It's like re- results are coming. And it's, you know, it could be anything and it could be really deadly. And, and there were moments where Christy thought, I don't know if my kids are going to have a mom in two years. There was, there was moments like that. And it, but it was a lot of like urgency and then waiting, urgency and waiting, which is very similar to the Christian life. It's a lot of really important things and then kind of waiting it out. And that's where we find ourselves in this, in, in this question. Now, Paul's writing back. So if you put it in letter, question, answer form, look at it in verse 1 of chapter 2. Now concerning the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ and are being gathered to him. You know what he's doing? He's answering a question. They're going, okay, okay, yeah, yeah. We're waiting, but... And he's like, okay, let me talk about this a little bit more. It's urgent, and then there's this waiting. What, what do we do in the meantime? So then, here's what I love about it. I love that the, the church was so focused on the return of Christ. I think, I think that's somewhat been lost in our faith and in our working out our faith is there's there's a lot of we're just we're Christians we're doing the church thing but are we really anticipating the return of Christ and I wonder because it's just really easy in our world we got everything we got every convenience and and our suffering there there is moments of often deep suffering but by and large, we're, 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 we have medicine, we have technology, we have conveniences. And I wonder if somewhere along the way, we lose the urgency of Jesus returning. And I love it that the church here, now they're not interested in, you know, like charts and all of that stuff. They're just like, what, what, is Jesus going to return? And when is it going to happen? What, what are we waiting? What, what are we looking for? And I love that they're so focused on the return of Christ and that that, it, that, that encourages me. I'm, I'm in this text this week on, have I even thought about Jesus returning this week? I, I have, have I even considered Jesus this month? Have I even consciously thought, oh my gosh, one day Jesus is going to return and it is going to be amazing? Or do I have this, like, uh, I hope he doesn't return soon because I kind of rather like my life. <laughs> 
that in essence is a problem. Because the life that Jesus brings is much greater than this life. But we got, we got some addiction. We, we, got some, we got some value issues. I remember, I remember, you know, it's like I grew up in a home that often talked about Jesus returning. And, and, and I remember uh, this really distinct prayer, you know, and it was the night before my wedding. And I was like, Jesus, not tonight. <laughs> True story. I prayed that prayer. I'm like, Jesus, not tonight, you know, right? Because we have priorities. We're like, don't take these things that I want in my life away from me by returning, right? And I wonder if we, if, if, if we have this kind of anticipation that Jesus is going to return and do we even think about it? And I love that these New Testament, first century Christians, because they're suffering, they have uh, immense inconvenience, all kinds of stuff is happening, and when they can get, and which is in, a, in one sense a grace because it drives them to a greater reality that Jesus is returning. So they have questions, and that just teaches me. I love it. So, got to know some things about this passage, these 12 chapters in, in Thessalonians 2. This is one of the strangest passages in all of the Bible concerning the return of Jesus. It's debated it's not clear in every part. Some people kind of want to be really dogmatic. This is what it means. It's kind of all over the fence. And there are things said about the return of Jesus in chapter 2 of 2 Thessalonians you will not find anywhere else in the Bible. It's a tough text. It's a, it's a crazy text. And so here's how I want to approach this. They're concerned about the return of Christ. We are drawn. Oh, God, give me. Let, let me be concerned. Let me be focused. Let me be mindful. Let me have eyes to see that one day Jesus is returning. And then here's the best that I can do with this passage with, with, without going into opinion is what do we know? What, what do we know about the return of Christ? And Paul's going to give us some things here. Okay, not everything is clear, but here's what we do know. And because uh, I'm really concerned about conjecturing, conjecture on the word of God. So I'm not going to conjecture, but, and so we'll, we'll see. Maybe you'll be satisfied, maybe you won't, uh, depending on your camp and where you're from and how nerdy you are. Um, and so, but, but here's what we do know, and it starts in, chapter, in verse 2. Now concerning the coming of our Lord. There it is. Paul's gone. Here's what we do know. Verse 2. Not to be quickly shaken in mind or alarmed, either by a spirit, a spoken word, or a letter claiming to be from us. And he's talking to the church, right? He uses this word brothers, which when he uses this particular word brothers, he's meaning brothers and sisters, right? He's meaning the church. So he's going, look, concerning the return of Jesus, I can tell in your question to me, you have some concerns. So here, here's what we do know. I, I don't want you to be alarmed, church, or shaken, and the word quickly, shaken, is like an earthquake of the soul. I don't want you to be shaken up. I don't want it to be rocking around in there. I don't want you to have a, a loose foundation about Christ. I don't want you to be quickly shaken in the mind. Or the second word is alarmed, and this is the same Greek word we get frightened. I don't want you to be spooked. I don't want you to be like a horse and, and the whole thing. I want you to be calm. I want you to have a certain calm faith, right? I don't want you to be alarmed. And then he goes, either by a spirit, that's interesting, by a spoken word or a letter claiming to be from us that seems to be from us. He gives three possibilities, things that were happening in the church. One is some people had a spirit, right? Some people had a supernatural ability and and here, they're concerned about the return of Jesus, and they're afraid, they're frightened, they're, they're, they have an earthquake of the mind, they're, they're being shaken about what they believe about Jesus. Why? Because somebody, something, or some people are writing or speaking or even a spiritual demonstration, and they're, they're, they're given some fake news. Now, we know that you know, the, the late, you know, like 2015 to 2000 and whatever, whenever it's going to end, is going to be the era of fake news, right? 
We're all, it's all fake news, right? Uh, everything in our, right now, is that real news? Is that fake news? How can I trust it? Can't trust it. That's that network. Can't trust it. That, that's network. Can't trust it. It's all fake news, right? This was actually happening in the church, fake news. And some of it was spiritual. There was a spirit. And so it's like, wait a minute, this looks like it could be of God. It's very spiritual, demonic maybe, or it's a spoken word, you know, it's rap poetry. <laughs> it's a, like, don't be afraid of spoken word. It's amazing, you know. Uh, spoken word, which just means people, preachers. People are out there preaching a false gospel or even writing letters as if they're Paul. And, and here's the thing, the church is getting spooked. Why? Because they're getting, in, they're getting misinformed about the return of Christ. And, and what, are they, what are they being misinformed? Verse 3, let no one deceive you in any way, for that day will not come. So here's the thing is, there were people out there going, Jesus already returned, guys, what are you doing here? There was people writing letters. Hey, Jesus already returned. He's out in the desert. Remember when, when Jesus, one of his instructions was, if somebody comes along and says, I'm out into the desert, don't believe them. Right? That's what's happening here. People are, are writing. There's even spiritual test, uh, testifying to this. And the church is getting spooked because they're wondering if Jesus already returned. And so then they're afraid. And Paul's like, I don't want you to be deceived. If a spirit comes and tells you Jesus has returned, don't believe it. If, if a preacher comes through the city and puts up a tent, begins to tell you that the return of Christ has already happened and you guys have missed it, don't believe it. If you receive a letter and it looks like it's in my handwriting and, it's, and, it's, and it seems to be from us, don't believe it because I'm telling you, you'll know when Jesus returns. Now, put yourself in, in the shoes of these people. They're being persecuted, marginalized, outcasts. The parents are, are pursuing Jesus at, at the potential pain and hardship that'll come and suffering to their own children, all of that, all of that. Family members, people being in, put in prison from minor to severe, you know, it could have taken any of those forms. And then they begin to hear Jesus already returned. And then they begin to think, wait a minute. He's already returned. What difference has it made? I'm still in the same place. I'm still suffering the same things. I, I've, I've I, I thought when Jesus returned, it was everything was going to be better. Everything was going to get restored. What, what ended up happening? And you begin to, oh my gosh, did I not believe enough? Did I not trust enough? Was I not a real Christian? Did I not believe the right things? Did Jesus forget me? I think that's the heart of what's happening. If you're looking around, you're like, I'm trusting in Jesus because I know that all the suffering is worth it. And then you begin to hear that Jesus returned somewhere else and you're left in your own suffering. You're either going, well, Jesus is not big enough, obviously, to really change everything, or he is, but I'm left out. So then they become afraid and frightened that what? That Jesus has forgotten them. Jesus has forgotten them. Paul goes, don't worry. Whatever is said to you, whoever comes, and with whatever authority you think they have, Jesus has not forgotten you. Now that's where, that's where it helps us this morning. Because we, we do get, sometimes we do have a spirit. We know that the, the enemy of God is a liar. And he's an accuser. And he whispers in the ear and he whispers through other people that you are worthless, that your faith is small, that you are unlovable. If a spirit tells you that Jesus has forgotten you, don't believe it. And you will hear preachers and they will tell you it's, it's not grace, it's what you do and it's what you bring. And unless you bring the right words and unless you bring the right worship and unless you bring the right heart, Jesus will forget you, don't believe it because it's grace and not your works. And if you get a false letter like we have and every Easter, all kinds of false letters rise up. 
the gospel of Judas and the gospel of Philip and the gospel of Jesus is married to Mary and, and Martha and whatever. Those are all false gospels. And if somebody it looks authentic and it's from somewhat of the first or second century, but it gives you a different gospel, don't believe it. Because Jesus hasn't forgotten you. Paul is so clear. I mean, he, Paul loves us so much that he's willing to say, if anybody teaches a gospel that is not the gospel that I have spoken, let them be accursed. Let them be thrown off a bridge. Let, let them be ostracized. Let them be cursed forever and damned because they are stealing the hope of the gospel. We can, maybe you haven't thought Jesus has returned, but I, I'm sure at some part in our life, whether you verbalize it or not, you've wondered if Jesus remembers you, if Jesus has forgotten you. God has not forgotten you. The Lord loves you. And, and here's the thing. Do you see the, there's this juxtaposition in this passage. Paul's like, if another Bible comes, don't believe it. Which means that as we wait for Jesus to remember that Jesus has not forgotten us, our waiting for Jesus' return is really, is really a temptation to hold on to the promises of the Bible. It's not to hold on to feeling or how I feel, do I feel secure? That's not it. We are to hold to the promises of the word. It is a battle of Bibles. It is a battle of truth. And here's what we know about the return of Jesus. We will all be tempted between the fake news and the truth of the promises of God and his word. And so as we wait for the return of Christ, we hold tightly to the promises because God's word will not be broken. And then it goes on. So then he begins, okay, here, here's what else we know. I'm going to start at this comma in 3b. Unless the rebellion comes first and the man of lawlessness is revealed and the son of destruction... First off, that just sounds crazy in our modern world, right? We're like, are we talking the Bible or are we talking Star Wars? Unless the rebellion burn, 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 comes first, the man of lawlessness, you know? <laughs> the son of destruction. It's like a Western. It's, it's, it's weird. It just hits us weird because we don't talk in this way. Who opposes and exalts himself against every so-called God or object of worship so that he takes his seat in the temple of God Proclaiming himself to be God. So one, we're going to be tempted to forget the promises of God by, in the Bible by thinking that God has forgotten us. And secondly, here's what we know about the return of Christ, is it's going to get worse before it gets better, right? I love this. Here, here, I love it. Here, okay, if you're, if you're like, sometimes you just got to read the Bible slowly. They're like, I'm really, a, I'm really afraid maybe Jesus has already returned. Paul's like, don't be afraid. It hasn't gotten bad enough. <laughs> You're like, oh, man, amen, praise the Lord, hallelujah, you know. And isn't that funny? Like Paul's like, take heart, it's going to get bad. Paul's encouraging the church that God hasn't forgotten you, but it's going to get much worse. And, and he talks, to, like, you don't have to worry about Jesus returning until the rebellion and the man of lawlessness, and this is great encouragement. Here's what's crazy. Why is it that I, I, I constantly believe that because I'm a Christian, bad things shouldn't happen in my life? What, who told me that? Nobody told me that, right? You, you can't find it. And we, we like to kind of use scripture and then we twist it. We're like, God won't give you more than you can handle. Yeah, he will. Because if he didn't, you don't need him. What are we doing? We're like, I got it. I'm strong enough. Oh, okay. You're your own savior now. I got it. Right? No, no. He constantly gives us more than, what he says is he always provides a way out, which is grace and his strength and his power. What, what is it? This is the religion that resides in all of us, where we believe, God, I've done the right thing. Now you do the right thing to me. 
God, I've done it. I've listened. I've obeyed. I've done the right thing. Now you do the right thing to me. And then somewhere in our, in our journey, we're like, okay, well, I've done the right thing. I've gone to church. I've been consistent. I've, I've joined the teams. I'm helping the church. I'm going to hometown Christmas. I'm, I'm reading my Bible. I'm waking up early. Uh, where, where are you? Why does this stuff still happen to me? And then we conclude, well, either he's forgotten me and so I'm unlovable, or we go, forget you, you must not exist because of my religion. Why do Christians think it should get better when they become Christians? Here's what we know about the return of Christ. Suffering and persecution, big I, big S, is the pathway to the return of Christ. Is the path. That Christ is not returning on the heels of, of everything becomes glorious. Christ is going to return in the path of suffering and hardship and, and the need for patience and waiting and surrender and pain. Let me take you to Acts chapter 14, 22. No, nobody has this verse on their coffee cup. But I'd pay for that. I'd pay for that. Listen to Acts 20, 14, 22. Strengthen the souls of the disciples, encouraging them to continue in the faith and saying that through many tribulations we must enter the kingdom of God. Nobody's like, mm, that is my life verse. <laughs> Strengthen the souls of the disciples. That, that means if, if somebody's coming along going, hey, you know what? It, don't worry. You're a Christian now. Your best life now. It gets better now. You're good now. God loves you. He wants you fat, happy, healthy, rich. I like the fat part. It's hard looking this good. <laughs> it takes a lot of work. Anyway. That's not the way. That's not the road. The road is narrow, not wide. Christians aren't RVs, right? We're nimble. We're like dirt bikes. It's, it, it, it's thin. It's hard. It's rough. It's, it's territory. It's climbing. It's, it's not a paved road into the kingdom of God. What is it the religion in me says, well, I've done the right thing. Now God does the right thing by opening the road, right? No, no. Encourage the disciples of the church. It's going to be through persecution and suffering. Here's what Paul goes, don't worry. Jesus hasn't come. It, it will get worse. And, and let me tell you this, that it is through the suffering and persecution that the kingdom of God gets here. It is through these things that leads to the coming of Jesus. Let's break this down because there's some stuff going on in this passage. There's two events. Sometimes you read this passage like rebellion and man of lawlessness. And you can put that together and go, that's one time. That's actually not one time. It's not one time because the tenses in the language are different. Rebellion and man of lawlessness are two different events. The word rebellion here is the Greek word for apostasy. It means the leaving and the fleeing of the church. So here's the first thing. He's like, look, it's going to get worse. And this is one of the ways, it, this is the path in which Christ comes. And one of them will be an exodus from the church. It'll be an internal rebellion of believers, not an external rebellion in the world. He's talking about unless the rebellion, the apostasy or apostate happens first. And the tense is over a, de a good deal of time. He's like, look, there's, there are people in the church that are false, and one day they're going to be exposed. And when the church, the church begins to shrink, because all of a sudden the comforts are removed, now we're getting closer. But we're like, oh, wait, 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 wait. I don't want a smaller church, so what do I got to change? I ain't changing nothing, so just a heads up. So you have rebellion and you have the, the, man of, the man of lawlessness is this kind of apex event. Now there's a couple options for the man of lawlessness. One is that the man of lawlessness was a contemporary of the first century. Some say it's connected to the destruction of the temple in 70 AD. Some people say, well, it was when Tiberius or came in and, 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 or when it was Nero 
or when it was Domitian, or it was Vespian, or it was Titus, or now we're just naming things, right? And, and, it, and so there's this idea is maybe it was a Roman leader or an emperor or a general. And when the temple was destroyed, it is true that uh, they came in and they sat on the throne and they, they took all the gold and they destroyed the whole thing. And what you see now in Israel is the product of 70 AD. And so then that, that is one option. I don't think it's the best option. I don't think it's the best option. And the reason is because there's this mirroring happening. It's, it's in, in, in literary criticism. All right, now, here we go. You know, you have this structure of the way arguments work and the way poetry works and the way that genres work. And, and, uh, and in Hebrew and in Greek, the way they structure things, but you have this A, B, A, B kind of system. And that is, it's contrasting A and B and A and B. And in the scripture, you have A, the man of lawlessness, and you have B, the revelation of Jesus, or A, the revelation of Jesus Christ. And then you have B, which is one gets revealed and one gets revealed. Which is why I'm arguing that option number two is the option and that it's a waiting for the, the revelation of this supernatural character, either Satan embodied or Satan himself. And so it comes to this, this moment, this apex moment, after this great apostasy and rebellion and then the man of lawlessness. And the reason is because this man is being compared to the revelation of Jesus Christ. So it's not just a regular man, it's a different kind of man. Which I think option two is that this hasn't happened yet. It's still in the future. There's a man of lawlessness. And the word lawlessness just means absolute conscious disregard for the law of God. So it's a man who embodies the opposite of God's law, God's desire, God's heart, God's wish. That's the man of lawlessness. He's a, he's a supernatural figure, and we'll see why in a little while. But look what he does. He sits in the center of worship. Now, if you define this as the temple, I can understand that because it, it appears to be the temple but I think because it's a supernatural and not a, not a Roman emperor, I'm, I'm thinking it's the, the temple here is a reference to the center point of human worship. And that this man comes to the very center point of worship and dictates who worships and who doesn't and who gets worshiped and who doesn't and the consequences thereof. Look at the text. It says, and, and what? He puts himself in the center of worship, right? As an object of God himself, so that he takes a seat in the temple of God, proclaiming himself to be God, and exalts himself against every other so-called God. So we're not talking about the Jewish God or the temple. It's, it's a greater temple. It's a metaphor for the center of, of maybe our life, maybe capitalism, maybe whatever that looks like, and dictates worship. And isn't that kind of, I mean, is that kind of happening? Culture dictates who you can worship and what you can worship and what you can say and what you can't say and where you can say it. I have, a, I have a niece. She's seven. She lives in Arizona this last week. This is a true story. Last week, uh, this is like Tuesday, she's praying before lunch. The principal called her in and told her that if she prays again, she will be suspended. Oh, no, I was just about like, <sighs> I'll go to Arizona right now, you know. So my, you know, my nephew and niece and my sister, who, my sister is her grand grandma, calls me and just talking. And, and I'm like, well, what would you tell her? I'm like, tell her not to stop praying. Because nobody, nobody tells you that. Nobody is at the center of our worship except the Lord Jesus. That's our first allegiance. And if they're willing to suspend a seven-year-old girl, they're going to have some other problems, I'm sure. But isn't that already happening in some degree? So although we can't relate in the sense of this is a future thing, we are seeing a kind of exodus from the church in a very secular society. And at the same time, a very secular society is dictating what worship and what what uh, what, what following Christ and as Christians looks like. I mean, there, there are literal presidential candidates who have sat on a stage and said the church needs to change or the church will go down, right? They're dictating 
what the church will do or not do. It it's becomes part of the lawlessness that gets exposed, and all of that lawlessness is a shadow of the lawless one who will ultimately be revealed. So then, what do we know? Suffering, persecution, hardship, all the things that we think should be different now that we're Christians, this is the path to the coming of Christ. Thirdly, verse 6 through 9, and you know what is restraining him now. There you go. See, now we're talking about a supernatural figure because he needs to be restrained. See that? And and him now, so that he may be revealed in his time. Seven, for the mystery of the lawless, it's lawlessness is already at work. Mystery of lawlessness, which encounters the mystery of Christ. Have you heard that phrase? That's out of Ephesians, the mystery of Christ. So you have two mysteries. Mysteries are those things which were originally hidden, now being revealed by God. So God is revealing the mystery of lawlessness, which is the final end of, of everyone who disregards the law of God. And then you have the mystery of Christ being revealed, and one is being restrained until that person is to be revealed. Verse 7, for the mystery of lawlessness is already at work. Only he who now restrains it will do so until he is out of the way. And then the lawless one will be revealed. There it is. Boom. Here's your new house. It's revealed. Whom the Lord Jesus will kill with the breath of his mouth. That's a toothpaste commercial. Here's what we know. Here's what we know. Jesus is king. Now and then. They're, they're, they're struggling. They're afraid. Paul's like, look, you're going to be tempted to leave the promises of the Bible. You, you got to know that this, this is the pathway to the revelation of Christ. And thirdly, you got to know something right now is we're not waiting for a future king to be revealed. We got a king right now. We got a king right now. I, and I love this. And, you know, there's all kinds of talk. Uh, uh, but I love, I think it was so intentional, Kanye naming his album, Jesus King. And I don't know if you saw that picture this week. And the biggest screen of Times Square is the, the blue album cover with the phrase, Jesus is King. At the very center, at the very center of our marketplace and worship as a nation, there is the phrase, Jesus is King. And, and when we say Jesus King, it is not a future king, but it is a now king. It is a then king, and it is a right now king. And how do we know? Six and seven. He is being restrained until he is out of the way. What is that? What, what is Paul drawing the church to? Jesus is, you're suffering. It's hard. I want you to be patient, but Jesus is restraining. Jesus is waiting. Jesus is over it. This, this man of lawlessness, which means the timeline of redemptive history, will be accomplished in Jesus' timing because he's restraining it. He's doing it intentionally. Why? Because he's king over all things. Right now, he is reigning and active in our everyday life and holding the ultimate revelation of the lawless one. Because he's king. That guy, the lawless one has no power. He can't do anything unless Jesus says, all right, let's do this. Jesus is over all things. He's the king. But then it goes on. He's the king now. He's the one restraining. He's the one holding. It's supernatural. And then he's the king then, whom the Lord Jesus will kill with the breath of his mouth. Isn't that amazing? Here's what I love about it. We have like this very conquering image of Jesus showing up and he's tattooed on the thigh, king of kings, and he's ripped and no, you know, the whole thing. He's just like, I'm gonna, it's going to be funny when he comes and he's like just skinny and, and I, we have this image of Jesus. We're like, is that you, really? You lift, bro? You know, like Jesus shows up. We have this warrior Jesus and he is a warrior, but what does he use? His breath. The very God who spoke existence into the world is the God who will speak evil out of the world. And he'll do it with his voice. He doesn't need a sword. He doesn't need a weapon. All he needs to do is speak. All he needs to do is judge and condemn. I love this. He's just going to speak. Look at Revelation 19.15. From his mouth comes a sharp sword 
with which he will strike down the nations. How is he going to strike down the nations? The sharp sword coming out of his mouth. And he will rule them with a rod of iron, and he will tread the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God Almighty, which just means all he has to do is speak. I love this. The lawless one is revealed. Jesus shows up, and the, and the devil is killed by the mouth of God, who says, just like he yelled at the calm, just like he spoke to the storm, be calm, stop. All of that work of the devil in our lives, the lawlessness, the temptation, all of that, Jesus is going to stop with the breath of his mouth. And then what does it say? And this is one of my favorite parts. This could be a live verse right here. Kill with the breath of his mouth and bring to nothing. Oh, man, Christians, whatever, whatever's happening, whatever that road that leads to the kingdom of God, whatever persecution and suffering and, and all of that hardship and all of that pain and, and all of that wondering and all of that angst, all of that, here's what Jesus is going to do. It's going to build and build and build. It's going to get worse before it gets better. It's going to build and build and build. And then Jesus is going to go, it's going to come to nothing. It's not going to produce anything. It's not going to steal your joy. It's not going to steal your future. It's not going to steal Jesus from you. They will come to nothing. All of this suffering in our life will, will ultimately just be laid waste. And it'll be like, that was a lot of, you know, that was like the Conor McGregor fight. It was like, nothing, you know? That's how it's going <laughs> to, it's like, it's like Star Wars episode one, two, three. It's like, nothing, right? It comes, it just comes to nothing, Oh, now, now we're talking on some things, yeah. It comes to nothing. I love that. He speaks all evil. The enemy has stopped. He doesn't even get a chance to fight. He doesn't even need to. And then all of that suffering is brought to nothing. He's like, man, and this is where, where Paul would encourage church. It hurts. It hurts to follow Jesus. It's hard to follow Jesus. It's, it, it doesn't always make sense. But whatever is happening, it will not come to something it'll come to nothing by the appearance of his coming it'll come to nothing by what when jesus appears it'll be clear jesus versus everything else and and you know we talk about this as, as kids and my own suffering we've talked about this in this last month with with christine we've, we've talked to the kids and it's like look if you knew if you knew Jesus, like could really see him and everything would come into perspective, you would sign up for the suffering in your life because you would know how it ended up not coming to the thing that the devil wanted, but it came to the thing that Jesus wanted. And so you would go back and do that whole thing over again in light of the appearance of Jesus. It's called the beatific vision. That's the theology. That's the word. That the moment that you see Jesus, everything comes in perspective and you're like, I'm okay. I'm all right. Lastly, what do we know? This is one of the few scriptures in the Bible that we're, we're given a why. Oftentimes, we're, we're just like, here's some truth. Why did God do it this way? Don't know, but here's truth. In this passage, we have a little bit of why. Not all the whys, but we have some. Why? Why? Is it have to be so hard to hold to the promises of God? And why is Jesus so quiet that sometimes I think he forgets me? And, and why does it have to be suffering and persecution that leads to the kingdom of God? And, and why sometimes that's for a lifetime? And, and why, why, why does it have to be this kind of timing? Why doesn't Jesus just take out the lawless one right now and we'll party? Why does it have to be like that? Why the timing? Why the extension? Why is he restraining? Why? Verse 9. We get a little bit of why, and there's three whys in here. The coming of the lawless one is by the activity of Satan. There it is, supernatural. With all power and false signs and wonders. And with all wicked deception, and here's where you'd circle this word, for those who are perishing because they refuse to love the truth and so be saved. Listen. Signs and wonders and miracles are not proof that it's God. We got to get that right right now. We got to test those things. We got to know. 
they will become clear, but there are a lot of people who are following false signs and wonders. They're like, well, how, how could it not be God? These are miraculous things. It's because there's also another power. And then that, those people will be deceived for, for what reason? For what reason? And the first reason is, is because the timing, the persecution, the temptation to lose the promises are, are, are a, a, a way to expose, expose what? You see this? The coming of the lost one by Satan with false signs and wonders and with wicked deception for, not, not for those who are in Christ, for those who are perishing. Why? Because they refuse to love the truth to be saved. And so one of the reasons for the timing and one of the reasons for the waiting and one of the reasons for God's plan is to expose those who hate the truth. We're told that at, at, when we meet Jesus, you will have no excuse for your life. You will have no excuse. None of us will be able to say, well, God, actually, this was a good reason. This was a good thing. I didn't worship you because there will be no excuse. And one of the reasons why there won't be an excuse is because the time that God has allowed in his wisdom so that instead of him just telling us what our heart is, through this process, we get our heart exposed to us. So then all of a sudden, when we, when we meet Jesus, we're like, I get it. I hated the truth. Ephesians, Paul calls Jesus the truth. Jesus calls himself, I'm the way, the truth, and the life. We're not talking about doctrine here. We're talking about the person of Christ. They hated the person of Christ and so decided they didn't want to be saved. And part of the timing was to expose the heart so that those who hate God will be exposed for what they are with enough grace and time. Secondly, is to warn. Verse 11 Therefore, God sends them a strong delusion so that they may believe in what is false. I really, dis I really dislike this verse. It breaks my heart. I don't want to teach it. The word therefore, people get exposed to the, to the hate of God in their own heart. And then what does God do? Therefore, somewhere along the line, we're not given any kind, of, any kind of cues, but just somewhere along the line, their lack of desire for the truth and love for Jesus and desire to be saved gets solidified in them by God. I hate this verse, if I'm honest. But it's, this is true that Someone's, we believe this lie where it's like God's always willing, always waiting, and so I have enough time to get my stuff together, and when I get my stuff together and, and get into a different stage of life and, and all the things that I want in my dreams, then, then I'll choose God. Well, you might find yourself in such rebellion for so long that God eventually hands your heart over to the lie of your own so that you will never turn to him because he's locked it in. He's locked in your desire. And here's the reality. We don't come to God on our own. It takes God coming to us. And so then he comes to you and he lifts you out. And he decides who gets lifted out and who does not. And somewhere along the way, like the heart of Pharaoh in the Old Testament, God hardens it. And we're not given a promise that this is to the day in which he returns. It could be any time you will eventually find your own lack of faith in Jesus solidified and you will never believe. It's to warn you. It's to warn you. But then lastly, it is to send you. Verse 12, in order, here we go, there's that phrase, in order, so you get this biblical logic, that all may be condemned who did not believe in the truth, but had pleasure in unrighteousness. So God could solidify, be warned, if you're running from the Lord, you do not know when God will solidify your lack of desire for the Lord and fulfill your own dreams against God. But... Hasn't happened yet. We don't know. But look at the language. Maybe, that's future. In order that, all maybe who did not believe in the truth. So it's to expose those who hate God. It's, it's to warn those who are on a trajectory of hardness that, that 
God chooses salvation, not you, so you you don't get to come to God whenever you want to. And lastly is, church, we don't know. It hasn't happened yet. It's in, it, it, it may be, which means it sends us out as missionaries in the world, compelled with urgency that there are people who, are, who potentially at one point may be totally, totally hardened against the Lord. So therefore, go! Go because it hasn't happened yet. Go. And for those of you who are not Christians and you're hearing this warning, it is to come. It hasn't, if it hasn't happened yet, come. Meet Jesus. Give your life to Christ. Do not wait until it is your best moment because you might find that that best moment never comes. You come to grace. And church, we go out in grace. Oh, we go, we go, oh my gosh, God, you, you may or may not allow my neighbor to be saved. They totally are in rebellion against you. I don't want them to be hardened. I will do whatever it takes, whatever it takes so that it may never be said of the people I love that they will be hardened. But until then, I got work. I got the work of grace and the invitation of grace. That's what we know. That's what I invite you to this morning. That if you, if you want to stop being hard against the Lord and you, you, you're sensing God is calling you and you've been rejecting this morning, receive him and be saved. Because God has done a good thing by exposing your heart this morning. And join the rest of us as we wait tempted and persecuted and suffered and hardship and we worship a king that's now and then together and if you did meet Jesus this morning you you can come and take communion if you met Jesus this morning tell someone so that we can celebrate with you and uh, and you'll see those who have met Jesus celebrated this morning in baptism let me pray Lord Jesus your word is good and right there's things I prefer that it, was, it didn't say, but it says it. And Lord, you are your king. You've called us and you are calling us this morning. Keep us patient in waiting and in trusting for the, the, the now reigning resurrected king to ultimately be revealed and bring to nothing all of the things that are against us. We pray in your name. Amen.